Keith, what day of the week is it? Philosophy Friday. Philosophy Friday, season two, episode three. This is part three in our discussion of Aja uh, Y. Martinez's essay, Critical Race Theory, its origins, history, and importance to the discourses and rhetorics of race. And so far, this essay has taken us all over the place, <laughs> which is fine. But hopefully in this last one, we're gonna try to really zero in on answering the question, uh, what exactly is critical race theory? We're gonna look at four kind of premises of it and where did it originate? Cause this is kind of relatively new. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're on page 17 of this essay um, and it, uh, uh, she's gonna just say straight up, here's the origin. CRT originated in the field of law and emerged as a reaction against the critical legal studies, CLS, movement due to the failure on the part of CLS to acknowledge how race is a central component to the very systems of law being challenged. It is informed too, this is key, by civil rights scholarship and feminist thought. Keith, uh, do you want to uh, expand that or kind of put that in your own words at uh, all? Um, well, that was the, I, I think I think it was episode one. Uh, we couldn't remember what the thing conjunction with uh, feminist thought was, but that's uh, yeah, civil, civil rights. rights civil rights was a thing. I, I think I said critical theory or something like that, but it's uh, civil rights scholarship. And so, um, you know, I don't know enough about the critical legal studies, um, but what they were in, as I understand it, what they're looking to do was basically analyze analyze the law without the lens of race. And by not use, utilizing the lens of race in their discussion on law, the critical race theorists thought that they were basically missing out in understanding yeah. what the intents and purposes of the law were. So going back to convergence theory that I think we mentioned in episode one uh, with Derek Bell, that, okay, you do have this Brown versus the Board of Education. And if you're not looking at it through the lens of race, you can think, wow, what a virtuous act they want to bring the race together. But then you put us in our historical context of communism and the communists are looking at us and utilizing our segregation as a tool of look at how oppression, how oppressive the Western societies are. We need communism to liberate people. Therefore, the whites who are in power were willing to go along with Brown versus the Board of Education because it makes them look good on a global scale, but it's still advancing their, it's still protecting their monies, it's still protecting their capitalism, yeah. all those sorts of things. So it's actually a move that's preventing the revolution. It's kind of like, you know, I think it was uh, von Bismarck gave some welfare because it was a they thought, well, it's a means of stopping the uh, communist revolution from taking place if we just throw the poor some money. So the so the critical race theorists are looking at these critical legal studies and saying you're you're not incorporating the reality of race into your discussion, yeah. um, and that's a and that central component. What's interesting is they also bring up kind of the the feminist thought uh, along with it, which uh, I assume is probably based upon more of a radical subjectivity of the lived experience of the individual yeah. coming in. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it, sa it says somewhere in here, uh, maybe it was before this, critical legal studies actually denies race is a thing, right? So uh, critical race theory is going to say, yeah, it is a social construct, but it has real lived uh, implications, consequences. And so it was this dissatisfaction with critical legal studies and uh, co-founding member uh, Mary Matsuda defines critical race theory this way. She just gives us a, a definition here. And this is, I think, really important. So we are not straw manning. We're not making up a boogeyman when we say, when I read uh, this definition of critical race theory, it's a big deal. Here it is. 
She says, the work of progressive legal scholars of color who are attempting to develop a jurisprudence that accounts for the role of racism in American law and that work toward the elimination of racism as part of a larger goal of eliminating all forms of subordination. This is huge. So it's just the elimination of racism is just part of a larger goal. Critical race theory is part of this larger is this larger project to eliminate all forms of subordination. Keith, what does this mean? The yeah. So so you uh, if we put us back um, basically like you know, I, I keep going back to our basic definition of uh, communism was uh, you know liberation of the proletariat. Uh, this is part of our. Uh, yeah, race, sex, is anti-gay that we've been talking about on uh, at CRF. But uh, yeah, so this goal of, of what does it mean for humans to be free and to be liberated? Um, and so for in, in the mind of some of these individuals, when you uh, accept the concept of intersectionality, we have a bunch of places of oppression. And so, you know, if you're a trans, black, female, queer, whatever all goes on there. You have to buy, and so you need to be liberated. Every one of those that's, that's, that's oppressing you in a society, you need to be liberated of that. And so the, so it's, it's, I don't know what her final goal of forms of subordination is because you, you're just, you always just want to ask, well, how are you going to get there? Yeah. What is that going to look like? Um, it's anti-hegemonic in that sense, which we said is an impossibility. Yeah. And in scripture, if you're, if you're trying to prove this, in scripture, God says when he's uh, giving the covenant curses and blessings to Israel, he says, I will make you the head and not the tail. You will lend to the nations. They will, uh, uh, you will not lend from them. And then if, if they're disobedient, God says, I'm going to make you the tail <laughs> and not the head. You're going to beg. You're going to borrow. You're going to plant your crops, but, but you're going to eat and not be satisfied. And so this whole idea of there's always a head, there's always a tail is an inescapable reality when you're living in God's world. Yeah, and you go back to the garden, a uh, serpent comes in, deceives, now you have two seeds in the world, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And so the Marxist or the racist and or the feminist, they, they kind of have a hermeneutic that they replace that with. So for the Marxist, it was the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is basically the seed of the serpent, the proletariat is the seed of the woman, and he's going to come along, crush the head of the bourgeoisie, and kind of get power and kind of have bougie, this... bougie, by the bougie, way. Bougie, bougie, <laughs> yeah. So, so, the, uh, yeah, bougie, so the bougie people. Uh, and so if you're a feminist, you're going to smash the patriarchy. So, so um, in many ways, what this is, is going back to our, you know, as Christians, it's a false gospel. It's a false setting up of the narrative of what the problem is in the world. Now, obviously, we believe that the seed of the serpent does oppress people, and there is evil things that we as Christians uh, must and want to oppose. Um, but this reality of, uh, even like Colossians 1, even when Jesus reconciles all things to himself, um, we still think at the end of the day, there's going to be a place called hell. So like in, in some of their understanding, that's a subordination. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so there's an eternal subordination of the wicked. Um, so, so as Christians, uh, we want to we, we don't want to buy into this egalitarian. It always ends up in heresy. Almost everybody I've seen that buys into this concept of throwing off uh, or ending all forms of subordination. I remember years ago, Rob Bell, when he came out with his uh, End of Hell book, whatever that was Love called. Wins. Love Wins. I remember seeing an interview with him and uh, Martin Bashir, I think was his name, and he was trying to press him on some things, and he was asking about, like, you know, where's God with the Palestinian conflicts, and uh, and Rob would just do these really vague, uh, he's in solidarity with them, God's in solidarity, like, what does that even mean, he's in solidarity with them? But the minute you get this 
uh, egalitarian bug in you, and it is it's and it is the air we breathe. Going back to hegemony, egalitarian is the air we breathe. The minute someone stands up and says, "I don't believe in equality," you you just kind of like you can't say that. Um, and and even when you make distinctions between men and women, um, even in the church, sometimes having lived in New York and L.A., and then it was funny. I remember being in a service here in uh, Moscow, and the uh, guy was preaching. He made a comment like, "Oh, women, when you're in the kitchen," I was like, "You can't say that," because New York and L.A. you would never make a comment about a woman being in a kitchen. And so it told like I'm not politically correct yeah. at all, but it totally we actually mean it when we say <laughs> yeah. so, so when you're in the kitchen yeah. and they're all like yeah 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 and they're like mm -hmm. they all gave yeah. like an amen and I was like uncomfortable for a second because I, I like in my yeah. other context you just never make that comment see you see you and I especially reading this have developed the dual consciousness of feminism uh -huh. egalitarianism yeah. racism anti like you uh, it's hard to not adopt these categories, uh, whether you're studying and reading them, or as you said, you just live. If you're just living there, yeah. there's certain things that you're like, I cannot say that. Yeah, and, and I, I, yeah. Christians have that dual consciousness that mm -hmm. we we're talking about. The kind of people of color have. Mm -hmm. And and I think yeah, and that's pretty important to realize. That. And it is like one of those things. Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. So once you kind of give them that hermeneutic, and you think of you know kind of heightened racial situation now. Like I, I now totally overthink every interaction with a black man. You know what I mean? And it's just like or, or a black woman. Like okay, where are we? Where are we? Uh, what are they thinking now? What yeah. do I think? What are they thinking? <laughs> Who's thinking what? And so. So I think, I think when you set this in a larger framework, and I think it, it does even tie into ultimately because uh, eliminating all forms of subordination, it, you know, we, we can try to be charitable. I, I, I'm not saying that uh, Mari Matsui is going right here, but at the end of the day, um, what does that look like having a God? You know what I mean? As, as Christians, um, we believe that ultimately we are to be subordinate to God. We believe that God has given us hierarchies. And even 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is subordinating all things under his feet. The last thing to be subordinated is death. And so the nature of the universe for the Christian, and even if you're a Darwinist, is that there's hierarchies. And, and they're yeah. just inescapable. There's a, a feminist woman, Camille Paglia, who's totally worth reading because she's she's brilliant and a nut and all this sort of stuff. But she, I remember reading one of her books, and I, I'm not going to remember it verbatim, but she's talking about how basically the, the left wants to overthrow hierarchies. And they're like, but we always fail to realize we're going to replace it with a new hierarchy. You know what I mean? Because because you just can't you just can't undo reality. And, and that's one of the things, we, like you mentioned in the CRF talk, one of the good things about being a Christian, we have reality on our side. And so what we have to do is just take reality and keep pressing it down upon people. And everybody knows there's inequalities. And Thomas Sowell, who I think you mentioned in the last episode, he has a book called Disparities and Inequalities. And what he does is show that all these things that we often lament over, these in, he's like, they're just normative. It's not because of the system. Um, it's just because the way the world is. And the and, and what you have to do is escape reality uh, to get to the place. And it, it, and it is. like It is kind of an anti-reality philosophy to try to get man to basically be God, that he can be untouched and unmoved by the things around him. And, yeah. and we just can't get there. Yeah. So a set, what, uh, what is the essence of critical race theory? It is anti-hierarchical. Mm -hmm. It is egalitarian. And if you're a Christian and you're wanting to have a good dose of hierarchy, there's probably not a better thing you can read than the Westminster Larger Catechism a section on the, the fifth, fifth commandment, commandment where it goes through what are the duties of superiors to inferiors inferiors to superiors equals to equals what are the sins that are common to them and it's like that gives you like we need to write a book just like as an exposition of that because that is going to show how god has you uh, uses hierarchy to actually bless people. Mm -hmm. So when 
Uh, so we were reading uh, Man of the House by C.R. Wiley on Man Reads Monday, one of the other podcasts, and we talked about household justice. So justice in the home is when, uh, especially the father, uh, the most powerful person, might serves right. So uh, the power, the dominant power is given to serve righteousness to establish order in the home, but that power can be also used in really destructive ways. And so you'd want to say hierarchy is like the hammer. It can be used to build a house. It can be used to hit someone over the head with, and it's the tool, (laughs) right? That God actually clearly defines in what places it exists and what places it doesn't. Uh, and and you don't get to use what is the Galatians passes. There's no longer slave. Yeah. Male, male or female. female, or female. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, okay, that's that's not saying what you think it's saying the way uh, liberals want to use it for, for egalitarianism. Uh, it's saying something very different. And, and I think probably the best and most potent way Christians can actually fight critical race theory in the church is by embracing whatever hierarchy God has put you in and under. And one of the challenges right now is that we are living under governmentally a very powerful uh, government who's using its power for very sinful, devious, malicious purposes. And then the woke church, the critical race theorists are coming along and they're wanting to grab hold of that power and use it for their own purposes. And that's kind of what you're seeing in this tug of war of the next election is you have a lot of conservatives, a lot of even Christians who are all about voting for Trump, who were not planning on doing it the first time, but are all about it this time because they're wanting to prevent this uh, power that's already been misused Mm -hmm. under this current president for the uh, to turn everywhere into California, uh-huh. right? There's a sense in which we can uh, sympathize with that. I can understand why people vote for Trump. I would never do it for other reasons. But um, we so we have to embrace hierarchy. And if we're living that out, whether you are a husband or a wife or a kid or just a citizen, uh, knowing how to honor authority, knowing when to submit to it is going to be showing the world, hey, uh, when you harmonize with the way God made the world, things will go well with you, mm-hmm. right? All right, so um, let's get more into the, the origins here of critical race theory. So we said it started in this field of loss, started at Harvard Law School, and there's kind of two events um, that they cite as kind of what really got it started. So first, this break from critical uh, legal studies, which I think happened at a conference, right? It says... Yeah, I think 81... Yeah, uh, or it's 89, rather. Yeah. Um, where am I looking here? Uh, top of 17. Yeah, top of 17. Okay, yeah, there we go. Um, I'm looking a little bit farther down. It says, in the 1970s, critical legal scholars uh, charged that the law is not and cannot be disinterested in the status quo. These scholars declared the law as established by societal power relationships and court decisions as reflected, reflect is reflective mm-hmm. of this bias with a mask of blind legitimacy. Critical race theory arose out of, here we go, <laughs> lived experiences of students, students and teachers in U.S. law schools who experienced and were witness to CLS and liberal civil rights ideology that failed to address the, quote, constrictive role that racial ideology plays in the composition and culture of American institutions. 
And then uh, they're going to give the earliest cited event contributing to the development of CRT is the whole Derek Bell thing that we've already talked about. So that's the origin, the lived experience of seeing critical legal studies not work. And then this case of uh, Derek Bell uh, moving on and then Harvard not hiring someone that they found suitable. And it says uh, the al alternative course was the student response to this administrative assertion. It was the first institutionalized expression of critical race theory and one of, was one of the earliest attempts to bring scholars of color, color together, I cannot talk anymore <laughs> after doing three episodes of this, uh, to address the law's treatment of race from a self-consciously critical perspective. Whew. So there's your history. That's your origin stories for critical race theory and now we get into the kind of four premises that she summarizes and says yeah okay there's some differences depending on how you define it but these are kind of the four big things the pillars of critical race theory uh do you have those in front of you do you want to take us into that yeah so the uh, first one she says that racism is a central permanent and normal part of U.S. society, uh, quoting, and Delgado and Stefankic have a book called uh, Critical Race Theory, an introduction. And if you want to get it from the horse's mouth, uh, Delgado is like one of the founding fathers, the triumvirate Bell being the other, and uh, Freeman, Alan Freeman being the third. Those are kind of your uh, holy trinity of critical race theory people. Um, so Delgado says, uh, because racism is an ingrained feature of our landscape, it looks ordinary and natural to persons in the culture so you like maybe not a great illustration anymore but back in the day like if you're just you know you go out and restaurants and stuff like that people are just allowed to smoke and you're in there for a while and you begin to ignore that you don't even realize people are smoking anymore everything just kind of smells like it then you go outside of it and you're like oh my goodness i smell like smoke and so he's basically saying that like racism is like that you don't even know you're immersed in it you don't even know you're embedded with it and then somehow the people with the lived experiences are able to kind of talk outside of it but that's where um the first element is that it's central, permanent, and normal. And so you have to realize that that's their hermeneutic and approach in the world, that it's a, you're just in a smoky environment, you don't realize it, but the things you're doing are uh, racist and it's central. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to see how they tease out the definition of permanent, because if it's permanent, uh, you know, what's the hope? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, so, yeah. so I'd have to, I, I don't see them define that clearly anywhere, but um, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, the, this quote, just a. Uh, a sentence or two down. He says, Taylor asserts assumptions of white superiority are so ingrained in political, legal, and educational structures that they're almost unrecognizable. And because it is all-encompassing and omnipresent, it cannot be easily recognized by its beneficiaries. So this is a, this is a, I don't know, epistemological judgment. It's saying you can't actually know something because you are a beneficiary of it and it requires the lived experience of the whatever minoritarian status person the the oppressed person has access to this other special knowledge that you simply don't have but notice also that they ascribe to it uh, a godlike quality right what white superiority for them is all-encompassing and omnipresent uh -huh. and it's like man i thought that critical race theory was the boogeyman but like white superiority is just like it's god yeah for them and this god must be killed it must be subverted by crt and i honestly couldn't imagine like 
living in that world uh, and, and thinking, yeah, th thinking, and I, I guess maybe having the category of whiteness. I, as a Christian, I might call it the world, you know, sinfulness, you know what I mean? So yeah. I have my I have my category, but yeah, I couldn't imagine like the, the fear you would have towards and suspicion you'd have towards other people if you were uh, grasping that. So. Yeah. Uh, the second premise you want to... Uh, yeah, and the uh, second that? premise of CRT resides in its commitment to the centrality of experiential knowledge as detailed through narrative. And so um, in one of the other episodes, you think of uh, where I commented on the white guy, black guy going into a store. Manager says hi to the white guy, doesn't say it to the black guy. So that lived experience in that narrative. But what they end up doing is kind of giving a counter narrative. And he goes on to say, uh, because whites do not often acknowledge the experiences of people of color, CRT recognizes and has developed the methodology of counter story to relate the ra racial realities of people of color while also providing marginalized people a means to challenge the myths, presuppositions, and received wisdoms that make up the common culture about race and the invariably rendered minor minoritized people one down. And so what, what they're basically getting out here um, is that, as we've kind of mentioned numerous times, that because of their experiences in the world, they have knowledge that white people do not have access to. White people have the benefit of having the whole system on their uh, side that we're totally unaware that, uh, that yeah, the, the, the things around are totally benefiting us. And so the counter narrative kind of comes along and kind of pokes a hole in it and talks about the lived experience as a black man, as a trans woman, whatever it may be. And it's that it's kind of deconstructs the, the, the overarching paradigm yeah. is what they're getting at. Yeah, our friends over at Canon Press, I think Nate Wilson talks about story always wins. We're in the midst of these myth wars right now, and Christianity is the true myth. It's the myth of myths that all the other ones either try to counterfeit or borrow, or uh, even the pagan myths had some elements of the truth mm -hmm. uh, because they, the, everyone has this knowledge of God, but it gets distorted in, in different uh, places. And I really like this. Uh, I think it's insightful that they go to counter story. Mm -hmm. they, they recognize the power of narrative. And I, I even like this word, counter story. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to use it, right? Yeah. Like the gospel is the counter story to the world's whole system, yeah. right? And, yeah, and we do, and we have a counter story to critical race theory. We have a counter story to the Enlightenment. We have a counter story to Islam. We have a counter, and so, so, and there is, and it is. Go, go back, you know, like I mentioned, the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. We both have stories. You know what I mean? We, yeah. we, we each have a kingdom, and either Satan's the ruler and head, or uh, Jesus is your ruler and head, and you're telling a story from that kingdom. And so, and that's the nature of reality. The 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 seed of the serpent, seed of the woman are battling it out, and these sub narratives of critical race theory of whatever it may be, are all intertwined in those sorts of things. And so, yeah. you know, and we as Christians, we take every thought captive or insubordination yeah. uh, to Jesus. And so the, these theories we want to put in, one of the things I love that she says here is uh, what she says, however, <laughs> yeah. people of color can and do reproduce structures. And it's just so funny, like, just think about this for a second. Like, like psychologically, as a Christian, we, we can kind of step back, like, oh yeah, we're all sinners and we can kind of all do that. And, and it almost seems like she's a little bit shocked here. She says, however, people of color can and do reproduce produce structures, systems, and practices of racism too, but by writing and speaking against the oftentimes one-sided stories existing in a white supremacist world, CRT scholars illuminate the fact that the social world is not static, but is constructed by people with words, stories, and also silences. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting there is oftentimes, um, and this is a little bit of a shift for me, that it's often been, we can't be racist because we don't have power. Yeah. Um, but the reality of it is, if you offer up a counter story or 
in Gramsci terms, kind of a counter-hegemony, you're going to establish a new hegemony, and so you are going to offer up new powers and new structures. And obviously, they think they can get to a place where that's not going to exist. It's not going to happen. But I do like that she at least acknowledges that, yeah, we, we can do this. But, it, yeah. but it's, a, it's a little bit of almost like a little note, but, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But it's important that we do this uh, counter-white supremacy. So when I read that, what I thought of is Candace Owens, Thomas Sowell, and the kind of like anybody who is not woke so so you're a you're a black person but you're conservative you're a black person but you just don't quote get it mm -hmm. and it's kind of say, it, it's kind of accounting for these people of color who fall outside of the narrative who haven't been awakened yet to to the air they're breathing that is white supremacy and because they haven't they're not self-conscious about it they're just they're reproducing what they've been taught to do mm -hmm. and critical race theory comes along to try to awaken them to that no you actually have this other framework for interpreting reality and they, and they want to give them that um, and they're going to talk about that later on uh, kind of at the end where she has a, this extended section on uh, counter story where she gets real intersectional with it now, this is on page 23. Uh, it says, The keepers and tellers of either majoritarian stories or counter stories reveal the social location of the storyteller as dominant or non-dominant. And these locations are always racialized, classed, and gendered. And then she gives this example. For example, Ward Connerly is African-American from a working-class background, male, and a prominent politician and academic. From his racialized position, Connerly is a minority but he speaks and represents himself from a dominant gendered and class locations. From the position of an upper class male, Connerly crafts stock stories to argue against affirmative action and to deny racial inequities. Alternatively, Condon's work uh, narrativizes embodied whiteness and individual responsibilities as a white ally. Although Condon is white, she is also a woman who speaks from a non-dominant social location while as a white ally. She uses her dominant racialized location to craft critical race narratives that disrupt discourses of transcendence, often responsible for leading audiences of white anti-racists to believe they are somehow, quote, absolved from the response <laughs> Responsibility of doing whiteness. That is a brilliant, uh, I think that's a perfect example of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. So you're breaking people into race, gender, class, and then she's giving an, an example of people who are crafting these narratives, and this is where like Robin D'Angelo with right, white fragility is. Uh, she's trying to be a white ally, but she's trying to uh, not absolve people from the responsibility of doing <laughs> whiteness. So it's like, it's kind of funny when yeah. you read something like that. And it's also kind of sad that you kind of just use this grid mm -hmm. to now try to interpret yeah. all, all these people. But and and it's funny like kind of our CRF series racist, sexist, anti-gay. It's always those three things. You know what I mean? Everything goes yep. back to race, sex, and and uh, and gender or yep. yeah, homosexuality. So it's uh, yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. CRT premise three. Uh, do you want to take us yeah. into this one? And the effort uh, to end all forms of oppression. Uh, a third premise of CRT challenges dominant claims of race neutrality, equal opportunity, objectivity, colorblindness, and merit. This challenge takes on the hard task of calling to questions dominant ideology. And as Solorzano and Delgado Bernal argue, 
racialized ideological paradigms act as a camouflage for the self-interest, power, and privilege of dominant groups in the U.S. society. And so uh, the basic idea there is, yeah, like you have a dominant narrative. You have a hegemonic story that includes things like uh, instead of you know, kind of colorblindness or racial neutrality, uh, alleged ideas of equal opportunity. And even one of the things that's interesting that they bring up here is objectivity. Um, so even bring up, like, in all these debates and discussions, if there is not objectivity of some sense, um, it's all a power play. It's yeah. all just a shifting of the sand. So even if the this idea of, even oppression, just take the idea of oppression, is it is oppression a real objective reality that we must fight against or is it just something that she's socially constructing? Yeah, just a lived experience. Just a lived experience and, and they want to say, oh, well, I'm impressed because I didn't get whatever whatever they think they should do. So it's interesting that objectivity is in there and then, you know, as we were discussing earlier, meritocracy, that these things don't exist, that they're part of kind of the whiteness thing that actually embeds white su supremacy in the world. Um, so, so what CRT wants to do is challenge that white supremacy of the idea of objectivity. So if you, you know you think of the guy throwing on the white lab coat and uh, he just objectively measures and weighs things. And even as Christians, we can often say, you know, when you get into presuppositionalism, oh, they're misinterpreting the world around us. And so there's a certain level where as Christians, we would get on board to a certain extent that not everybody's objective in the enlightenment sense of the word. So we would kind of agree with certain strands of criticism of the enlightenment notions of objectivity and neutrality. Um, but what uh, the main point here is what CRT is seeking to do is um, uh, challenge all dominant narratives. Um, and so if we as Christians were to go into an Islamic nation, what we're seeking to do is undermine and deconstruct that dominant narrative. And so that's what they're trying to do, but in the context of CRT, in yeah. the context of the Enlightenment and liberalism. And it's funny, occasionally you'll come across a glitch in the system, and the two that come to mind is the Rachel Dolezal thing, where here's someone who's fighting, she was like, what end of end of lacy end of lacy chapter yeah yeah and and so she's just saying yeah if if race is this fluid thing which it is uh, for for them and she self identifies you know uses ex, extra bronzer uh -huh. like I think she even ha took on some kind of African like name or something <laughs> so she she's taking on all of the kind of cultural signifiers for blackness and actually fighting for. Um, these goals but then her I think uh, Christian fundamentalist parents outed her uh, and, and then she was kind of just thrown under the bus mm -hmm. and this this just happened again yeah I, I missed the story I saw a headline for it but I didn't yeah uh, yeah this just happened again another another lady who's Claiming. Yeah, a professor. I think yeah. she was a professor, and she used that to get into certain roles. And what's fascinating about it—that's what it was. I remember, and I remember seeing a lady's tweet complaining and lamenting, "How dare her use a, a person in the critical race theory? Was how dare this woman utilize people of color, blah blah blah, to advance her career? Well, what is like if if." What benefit would it have been for her if there is a system of oppression of whiteness that wants to hold them down? What benefit would it have been for her to have claimed that same thing with yeah. uh, the the vice the presidential lady as claiming to be an Indian? You yeah, know? yeah. But so there's some advantage to identifying as a minority. Otherwise, these people would not be doing it. Exactly. So and, and so it, so it is like you're saying it's kind of a, a fly in the ointment because you're like, well, what do we do here? Because yeah. the the admission of that tweet was. It pays to be a minority in, yeah. in certain contexts, at, le at yeah. least. So, so that's what we want to keep our eyes eyes open for: is where are these kind of little glitches in the system? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, and this gets to back to like Bonson and Van Til, where if you don't start with God, 
your system is going to be inconsistent at some point. Mm -hmm. And it might be down at the foundation. We'd say, yeah, it is at the foundation. But you could still build a house on a wonky foundation. And you might not notice until you get 100 stories up that, oh, it's actually leaning mm -hmm. a, a different way. And so sometimes you have to look for, okay, what are the consequences? And this is where we, it's called the reductio. Uh, you, you run it out to its end. You say, okay, if this is the wobbly foundation, let's run it up. Let's see how high we can build this building before it starts really tipping. And you can see, okay, this is one of the points. And the, this whole idea that now a minority status is uh, actually helping advance you in certain places. Okay, uh-oh, now what do we do? Yeah. Because we've created a new power structure, a new hegemony, and it runs counter to this this narrative that uh, white supremacy still reigns, reigns supreme. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, what always cracks up with the Rachel Dolezal thing was, I think, like a month before that, was uh, Bruce Jenner was Woman of the Year. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're just like... And God was trolling yeah, us. Yeah, totally. These, yeah, 100%. Uh, I always think of why the nation's rage and the people plotting the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. I can't help but him... You know, it's sad at the same time, but I can't help but him laughing at the absurdity of uh, what we're rolling out there. Yeah. All right, the fourth and final premise of critical race theory is the value of interdisciplinary perspective. What is... This don't and don't read this whole sentence. Just give us yeah, the, so, so the, the basic, wiki version. Yeah. So, so the, the the basic idea is if you take uh, so, so let's just say you have your sociological studies and you approach the world through a sociological lens. You, you're you're interpreting things a certain way. Then you kind of take your historical lens. You interpret things a certain way. Then you take your biological lens. And so what the um, kind of the interdisciplinary approach is doing is is trying to take all of those and bring it to whatever text and whatever situation that you're doing. So take the idea of intersectionality, but apply it to kind of like your hermeneutic of how you're approaching history, biology, and then interpret an event through that lens is yeah. what they're uh, basically trying to do. And, and as a Christian, I think in many ways, you know, I, I think of stuff that I read, so oftentimes when I'm studying the Bible, um, especially I prefer, actually prefer reading liberal commentaries because I feel like they often engage the text in a way that uh, engages the story better. You know what I mean? So like if I'm reading like a fundamentalist, I, I, I feel like they have to read it from the standpoint that it has to be like, has to be real historical. And if it's not, or if there's a little bit like wordplay, the wordplay can't really go there because yeah. what, what they're trying to do is just, it's almost like they're taking a video camera and retelling the story of Jesus. Whereas the liberal would read it and be like, oh, here's what's going on. And this is echoing this. And, and so the liberals will, and I think they're reading that story right. So um, this is one of the components of say critical race theory that doesn't necessarily phase me. Um, yeah. Doesn't really bother me because you, I'm, I, I kind of think you, you. Well, everyone should probably do this. It's just being an integrated thinker is the way yeah. we would talk about it. And really what it is, is they're making a distinction and saying critical race theory started in the law schools. It's, it's mainly a discipline of law, mm -hmm. but we also appreciate people who are in education, people who are in these other fields, and we want to, we want to include them. They want to be inclusive in using these other disciplines to further the goals of uh, critical race theory of undermining undermining the subordination, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, yeah, so they kind of just re recap them that uh, the kind of four major premises are uh, racism is central, permanent, and normal part of U.S. society. And even mention that, the, the, the in, thing that's kind of interesting is is critical race theory is predominantly an American phenomenon. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're probably not going to, it might, you might have a little component of it in other parts of the world, but for the most part, it's a it's a U.S. phenomenon. Um, so that's, that's one of them. The, the second premise is um, experiential knowledge as a trans woman, as a yeah. black man. Um, whenever you hear that as a, that's kind of a, you know, 
at least get your spider senses yeah. tingling a little bit. You And you actually see, so to people like Joel McDermott who want to say critical race theory is just this boogeyman, how many times do we hear people uh, appeal to lived experience, uh-huh. lived experience? I mean, I see it all the time, people using the vocabulary straight from here, whether they've ever read any of critical race, they couldn't tell you what it is. They're doing it. Uh-huh. Right, their their lived experience is of everything that is being described here, even though they can't articulate it. And on the ground, yeah, we we want to obliterate the idea, right? We want to take every thought captive, and we want to demolish it according to the knowledge of God. But we also want to know where the actual individuals that we are interacting with got that from, mm-hmm. whether they know whether they know it or, or not. If we know that, that's going to help us understand them better and then hopefully help us give them a counter narrative to their counter narrative uh-huh. that is the true the true one. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, f- was that the second one or third? Uh, that was second. That was, third one. Uh, third, at the, the premise, challenge dominant claims of race neutrality equality. So the, basically the idea of a counter uh, counter narrative, or yep. uh, Gramsci would call it a counter hegemony, and so you kind of have your hegemony, counter hegemony. You have your meta narrative, then you kind of have your uh, counter story, and then uh, finally, kind of an interdisciplinary approach to understanding law and basically almost all matters. So yeah, so uh, kind of, my, I'll give you kind of my concluding thoughts. And if you want to tag on, okay. you can. So uh, we we mentioned this in the last episode, but critical race theory exists in some ways, to give an alternative account and a persuasive one at times of why the world is the way it is, why life is hard, why there's evil in the world. Um, It's trying to account for the brokenness here. And we would want to say Christians have a better answer. And we need to have a thorough doctrine of sin that goes beyond the individual. So uh, we, we want to say sin gets into everything. If there's a group of people, we call it a system, there's going to be sin there. There's a group of people who made up some laws, there's probably going to be hmm. some sin there. And if you want like a biblical uh, kind of proof text or example of this, just think about every time God judges a nation or judges a family like Achan, right? And and then it's like everyone who's part of Achan's family, women, children, possessions, they all are going to get uh, swallowed up and destroyed. Um, God, God deals with us on multiple levels. His judgments happen on a national level, on a, a state level, on a family level, on a city level, on a town level, on an individual level. And, and it's like, because we have just so, especially in the reformed church, been so in love with just tulip and like individual total depravity, we have not done a good job of looking at how sin has infected all these other places. And because our solution tends to always start with the individual and we rarely ever get to, oh yeah, we also need to change these laws outside of a few activist things like let's get rid of abortion abortion Mm -hmm. or slavery or something like that. Uh, We want to start thinking in, in systems, in holes, in addition to individuals. And this is because as Christians, we can account for the equal ultimacy of the one and the many without making one ultimate over the other, mm-hmm. the, the rational, irrational kind of dialectic that we've, we've talked about before. Um, Keith, any other thoughts on, uh, on these things? Yeah, uh, kind of, so at CRT, we've been, uh, CRF rather, uh, we've been talking about uh, racist, sexist, anti-gay. And one of the things that 
I mentioned in my talk there is that the basically enlightenment threw off God and enthroned reason, and in enthroning reason it kind of universalized man in a way, and and they were not consistent in their application of doing that. And then kind of kind of critical theory, postmodernity kind of comes along. They throw off reason, and you kind of have just basically a bunch of contingent atoms basically bouncing through the universe and constructing uh, their realities accordingly. And so there, there's, a, there's a sense in which, obviously, as Christians, we do not sign off on critical race theory. Um, but if we're trying to be sympathetic to our opponents, we can kind of step back and think of, you know, if you're a black man in America and you see a knee on another black man's neck and a guy ends up dying, yeah. uh, you can kind of step back like, okay, that's For the tenth time in the last few months. Few months, yeah. yeah. And and within that, they're not telling you anything about what happened to any white people or anything like that because, and part of it's a political year and uh, election year and all that sort of jazz. But you can you can feel that and think through like, holy cow, and, and there is a possibility that your lived experience, like uh, even when I'm on college campuses, um, oftentimes women, you know, what, supposedly one in four women on a college campus are sexually assaulted and there's literally like boxes when you have to call for help like people live in fear you know what I mean and so so as Christians from a ministerial standpoint I think we can kind of step back and, and begin to understand where people are coming from but their but their counter story is ultimately uh, it's a universal acid and if you uh, if you adopt it and you begin to apply it and you begin to think it through it's, it's destructive of really any ends they want to get to because you can't get to this place of this universal liberation or uh, where you throw off all subordinations um, you just can't get there and so um, you can but you can understand their desire for freedom as Christians you know the, you shall know the truth the truth shall set you free you want to have some component in your heart and in your mind of yeah no we desire freedom and we do often feel uh, you know, even if it's just like more existential, uh, think of my life at points or times it's more existential, like, oh man, I was more free sort of thing. So, so I think there's a longing, uh, that, that people can step back and, uh, think about these things and have them. Uh, but what, what we as Christians have to do and what we just kind of emphasize in this is we have a counter hegemony. Like what is freedom for mankind? It's, it's yeah. being subordinate to God and his law. And so ultimately for the Christian freedom is subordination to Yahweh rather than insubordination to all things. And even within that, uh, it includes subordination to human constructs. And so if you're a child and your dad says that you have a 10 o'clock curfew, that's what your dad's arbitrarily coming up with. He could take 9 o'clock, could pick yeah. 11 o'clock, and your subordination to him in those things are are good and healthy and when your parents are making you eat your uh, fruits and vegetables and all that sort of stuff. So, so subordination is a fine thing and a good thing, and we as Christians don't have to be terrified of those things. Um, but we need to also, on the flip side, and we do it pretty well politically as oppose authoritarianism. You know what I mean? And so we need to also apply that to the home and then the church. Uh, we oppose uh, authoritarianism because everybody ultimately is under God. Um, so when, when I think about do, reading this stuff, I've, I've greatly appreciated this article. And, and uh, Google it, Critical Race Theory by Aja Martinez, um, because it really lays out really well, and I, I don't know about convincingly, um, but at least lays out really well what they're thinking. And you don't have to have a straw man and just yell cultural Marxist and intersectionality and act like you hope that the fear of these words throw people off because because yeah. some of them like you pointed out i think really makes sense intuitively like if you are i think if you're a gay trans person walk around moscow your experiences are different than mine yeah. people might look at you ah and everything else no one's looking at me i blend in i'm white as day you know what i mean yeah. i blend in as everybody else um but within that that doesn't mean therefore 
being gay trans is normative or good in any way, shape, or form. So um, I, I think it's helpful to step back, understand what they're saying, uh, but what we need to do is apply the scriptures and the gospel to them. Yeah. Well, if you have questions, comments, feedback for us, I think, what do you do on your podcast? Like rebukes? Yeah, any uh, questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and Keith there on Facebook. So. Yeah, there you, there you go. All right. <laughs> Until next time, peace.